0: Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series featuring David Frum's opinion, analysis, and insights exclusively for the hub community if you're enjoying this program please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great analysis news and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation the next voice you'll hear is sean spear in conversation with david Frum. enjoy
1: welcome to hub dialogues i'm your host sean spear editor-at-large at at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, Frum Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and the highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're discussing new and emerging questions about work in the post-pandemic era. These include the durability of working from home, as well as the rise of so-called quiet quitting, whereby workers are effectively working to rule in the context of labor scarcity and changing employer-employee power dynamics. David, I'm grateful to get your insights on how to think about these major questions. As always, thank you for joining me.
2: It's such an honor to be here. Thank you.
1: But before we uh, get to the topic that we want to cover in today's dialogue, um, we're having this conversation at 1.36 Eastern on um, Thursday, September 8th. And just as we started to record, we got news of uh, Queen Elizabeth II's passing. Um, This is a a monarch, uh, David, who served with, over a a time of of 12 Canadian prime ministers. Maybe I'll just have you reflect um, on her service, um, her grace, and uh, the the model of leadership um, that she displayed over her yeah. extraordinary reign.
2: Well, the, the connection between um, Queen Elizabeth II and Canada is, is even more intimate than I think um, a lot of Canadians understand, even those quite well versed in in Canadian history um, and its deep connection to the the monarchy of Britain, Britain the British Empire, and the British Commonwealth, of which Canada is a part. Um, Queen Elizabeth II became queen in the way that she did because of the abdication of her uncle, King Edward VIII. Um, at the time of the abdication crisis, one of the uh, overriding concerns of the British government was what, were the, what would be the attitudes of the dominions, um, and especially of Canada. This was such an important question to the British, not only because the empire was so central to the thinking of the British leadership of the time, but because um, what made the abdication crisis so intense was the um, smell in the air of a coming European war in which Britain would depend heavily on support from from the Dominions and especially from Canada, the, the largest and most powerful of the Dominions. And of all the Dominion prime ministers, it was Mackenzie King who was the most adamant that um, Edward VIII's marriage to the twice divorced Wallace Simpson was unacceptable uh, that he would have to that he would have to be forced to choose between uh, marrying the woman he wanted or staying on the throne and really um edging him out the door um and when you when you um read the histories of the period you see that the the huge role that Canada had in making in in accelerating the abdication of King Edward bringing to the throne instead the father of uh, the present queen and thus setting in motion the queen's early ascendancy to the throne. Edward, um, had he stayed king, would have lived into the 1970s. Of course, uh, Elizabeth's father, George VI, died earlier, and that's one of the reasons for this enormous reign. Um, there are often, frequent visitors to Canada. Um, I, uh, some people um, will remember the, um, the the voyages in Britannia up and down Lake Ontario, the Royal, Royal Yacht. I think it's a time of emotion. It's also time to reflect I think on on the deep constitutional continuity of Canadian history. And this is a long enough speech, but I'll say one more thing. I I think Canadians often try to sever um, their present from their past um, in a way that orphans Canadians. You just can't understand what Canada has been, is and will be without understanding that it is formed in this framework with British traditions and the British monarchy. Um,
1: Eloquent words, uh, David, This is a, a terrible day, but I'm I'm grateful that I got to spend it to eat with you and, and be able to draw on your your wisdom and, and insights. Um, let's now shift the conversation to what we we plan to talk about, uh, which is a, a set of issues around um, post pandemic work that we at the hub have come to think about as the as the withdrawal from work. Um, let's start with remote work, which is a subject that we've previously discussed. Uh, last time we spoke you were somewhat bullish that remote work could have considerable benefits, including for the environment. Um, But in recent days, we've seen growing calls from major employers for people to return to the office. Uh, What do you attribute that to? Is it small mindedness and old thinking, or are we discovering that being together has greater benefits than we may have thought?
2: Um, I think uh, what we're seeing is a continuing power struggle uh, between labor and management, labor and capital. in the context of a period where uh, the balance of power has shifted somewhat toward workers. So workers get to make work work more for them and less well for uh, employers, and many employers don't like it um, and are trying to wrest the power back. Um, that's probably unrealistic on the employer's part. Um, I do continue to believe that, that um, the new ways of working um, offer more, more good than, than harm, especially for, for women. Um, for the environmental reasons you mentioned, but also for others, uh, that, they, uh, that people, they, they make us all more self-actuated, self-directed um, uh, individuals. Uh, but whether I'm right about that or not, uh, unless there is a severe recession, employers are going to have to adjust. And not just because of the temporary exigencies of, of, of the labor market. Remember, in both Canada and the United States, labor force participation is now at or above pre-pandemic level. So people have, have returned to work. Um, and uh, uh, it's, we don't have big numbers, masses of people waiting, um, making up their mind whether they return. The, the Canadians and Americans are working in about the same proportions they did b- before the pandemic. But this is in a context. The labor force participation rate is always about people of age to work. And the, the larger context here is that we are living through the exit of the baby boom generation from the workforce, something that, that was postponed by the financial crisis. Many baby boomers extended their stay in the workforce because of the shock to the savings that happened in 2008 and 2009. Um, but the day of reckoning is here. Um, you know, uh, baby, uh, the largest numbers of the baby boomers are still in their early 60s. But people born uh, in between 1946, in the first um, years of the baby boom, 1946 and after, um, are are going. They are leaving the workforce. And that's just something that employers are going to have to work around, is going to reframe um, what the labor market looks like. And it's, it's no good wishing that things were different, because things are not going to be uh,
1: different. I should just say in parentheses for uh, viewers and listeners who want to understand um, the economic, cultural, and indeed labor market power of the baby boom generation, I'd recommend. David's masterful book on the 1970s, uh, when that influence really started to to take shape, I think it remains, you Thank know, the, the 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 most important book um, that I've read um, on I think that formative decade. Um, now, David, how do you see? Maybe I'll just pick up on 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 your answer. How do you see these questions about working from home versus returning to the office playing out? We all. Will the market ultimately sort it out in the sense that employers and employees will make these choices in a competitive market? You know, that is to say some employers, for instance, may turn working from home into a comparative advantage in pursuit of talent, whereas others may use financial compensation or other factors to attract or retain workers. Or is there some role for government policy to step in and address these issues?
2: Well, you know, historically, government policy has been very hostile. Uh, to people working from home. Um, and uh, this is a legacy from the day when when governments imagined working from home as being um, as being something that uh, would be done with industrial work and in a, in a way to defeat um, health and safety standards and defeat unionization. Um, I'm racking my memory now to recall when I was years and years ago as a reporter covering a case that involved um, a company that had, Uh, that made heavy socks for uh, cold weather wear. And um, the socks were made by knitters who worked uh, in their own, who, and the company made a big deal out of this. So this was a big advantage. You could knit on your own timetable, and the company would buy the socks and brand them. And th- this went, I think, to the National Labor Relations Board in the United States because they said, "Well, how do we know people are working the right number of hours a day? How do we know what the safety standards are in the home? How do we know that um, people are, are getting paid overtime if they're entitled to it?" You can't know any of those things. So government policy has been directed for a long time to getting workers out of the home and and into the office. Uh, so I don't think it's it's neutral, and um, I think government is going to, uh, it's been difficult for governments to adjust to a world in which um, we are moving from service economy to design economy, um, and I'm not sure that government policy can possibly be nimble enough to keep up with the way the world, way the world of work is changing.
1: Um, I, I want to ask about the private public sector dynamic here there's some evidence um, that there's a higher propensity for public sector workers to still be working from home than private sector ones. Um, Should that matter? Is there something of a moral obligation to taxpayer for government workers um, who generally benefit from from greater health and dental benefits and pensions and job security uh, to return to the office? In effect, is that part of the bargain um, that government workers opt into?
2: Well, I I think... It, again, it's, it's, it's going to depend a lot on on circumstances. Um, you know, government has been way more um, cautious about uh, understanding that, that the COVID pandemic is passing. Um, I just took train uh, uh, trains and planes from uh, um, Prince Edward County to Washington and was surprised that the, on, the only places now where you still see masks being worn are doctor's offices via rail and Air Canada. <laughs> it seems um, nowhere else. Um, so there, there may be some undue conservatism there. Uh, I think there are lots of government jobs that um, I'm not sure. For example, that people who are um, auditing tax returns need to be doing so in the context of an office. But there are other there are other jobs where. I mean, so the government is a vast employer, and there are many things that can't be done. Um, the The risk is, of course, is that you're going to get um, segmentation, and that that workers with more power are going to be able to do it, and will leave behind the others. Um, but I, I think. We, I, I approach this in an optimistic spirit that we are seeing here some new possibilities for making work more interesting and fulfilling and giving women especially more flexibility uh, to manage their family lives and balance family and work.
0: You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best journalism, commentary, analysis, and insights. Go to our website www.thehub.ca and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7am into your email inbox, you'll receive our best journalism, the thoughts and analysis of our smartest columnists and contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public debate. Sign up now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca Now back to our program.
1: But Before, David, we come to the issue of um, quiet quitting and and what it means uh, for individuals and the broader society, let me just put one final big picture question about these issues of remote work and, and working from home and, and returning to the office um, or the, the workplace, there's been some talk in the context of the growing divide between the so-called laptop class, whose professional lives were mostly unaffected by the pandemic, and the working class, what we called in Canada essential workers, who continue to have to physically go into work to provide for themselves and their families. As we think about post-pandemic work arrangements, to what extent, to what extent should we be mindful of this divide yeah. and its possible social and political economy consequences?
2: Um, I think with that, we, we are we are doing our worrying in the rearview mirror. I mean, the story of 2022 has been that people who must work in person, people who do non-laptop work, are enjoying one of the greatest bursts of market power that people in those kind of categories of jobs have have ever had. So, um, you know, that's that uh, wage increases are concentrated there. That's where the labor shortages are. Um, and you're seeing a real shift of, of market power. So we may be, it, yes, it was true during the pandemic that um, people who were able to work pretty conveniently from home suffered less during the pandemic than people who, electricians and contractors and so on, whose lives were really horribly disrupted. Um, and that was, an inequity, maybe an unfairness, but it, certainly an imbalance of difference. But in 2022, the story is um, those are the jobs that are seeing the most demand, the most opportunity, the most uh, pay raises, the most shift in market power. Mm-hmm. So it's an example of how I think you know we, we, we can be confident that markets do sort things out, um, and that whatever we're worrying about at any given point in time is probably not the thing we're going to be worrying about six months later. Um, I, I, I have been noticing, for example, I've been doing some work in the past few days on um, the prices of food and energy, which was a huge topic in 21 and 22. And, and there was a t- at the time, there was, there was so much attention to structural explanations, maybe these markets were too concentrated. And what we're discovering is markets worked. Markets worked. The price of gasoline is coming down. Uh, the price of um, the food price increases are slowing, and in some some foods, especially meats, prices are actually dropping because people adjusted uh, their, uh, their demand and supply was conjured forth. I, I think we need to, you know, there's so much um, in the world that is new, but we can um, have some confidence that the rules of supply and demand they they still operate. They still go- they still govern and. Uh, I think what we're going to see is that the world of work is going to evolve, but it's, we shouldn't we shouldn't be so pessimistic that it's always going to involve in ways that are detrimental to workers, unjust between groups of people. Sometimes they work they the world of work adjusts in ways that make life better for more
1: people. Um l- let's take up the 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 idea of uh, quite quitting um, now. Um, the, the notion seems to have come out of nowhere as an intermittent meme to now a mainstream idea that's been the subject of attention by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Globe and Mail, and on and on and on. What do you make of it and what do you think's behind it?
2: Um, so there's a lot of reporting that a thing that can't be defined and that also can't be measured is on the rise. Possibly that's true, uh, whatever it is, uh, however you measure it. But if, if a thing can't be defined and it can't be measured, I think it's difficult to make statements about it. Um, but if, if employers are um, reporting it, th- there may be some germ of truth to it. I just wonder whether in the period from the financial crisis to the pandemic, when power was very much in the hands of employers and of investors, whether they got in the habit of expecting things from workers that they didn't pay for. Um, and that were clearly above and beyond expectation, that they would ask a question, do you mind doing this? Do you mind doing that? And while it wasn't strictly part of the job, workers were more fearful, and um, and so they, they complied. And because they, and as, uh, as market conditions have shifted, uh, workers may cease to comply, especially if they're working in ways that are less super, supervised. But if there's any truth to any of this, and again, we don't know. It's a thing that can't be defined and that can't be measured. Uh, but if there's any truth, it may just be again. It's like... Um, you know, we've, we've you know, uh, I just, I just noticed that a, um, a, a restaurant uh, I uh, patronize a lot um, for uh, online, you know, that we order on remote food from, they no longer give you the steamed rice for free with the main course. They now charge a dollar fifty for the steamed rice. Um, uh, you know, I. Don't like paying the extra dollar fifty, but um, they could if they can make me do it. They're they're not wronging me. They're just saying, okay, the right that white rice that used to be quote unquote free now costs a buck fifty, and in the same way, maybe workers are saying um, there may be demands here that we felt were unfair um, and w- that we weren't compensated for, and that maybe either the demands have to be rolled back or the demands have to be compensated. If there's any truth to this story at all, and it may not be because we don't know what this thing is
1: and we can't measure it. If we for the purpose of the conversation take for granted it's it's happening at some magnitude as you say it's 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 impossible to measure and also accepting your point that it 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 if it it may simply reflect um the, the kind of new equilibrium between uh employers and employees but isn't there a, a a risk that a narrative um that tells particularly younger workers um that um that going above and beyond uh, is something to be discouraged. Isn't there a risk that that, um, that, that harms their, their sort of investment in their own human capital and professional development? If, if that's what's
2: happening, that would be bad. Um, we don't know that that's what's happening. And we, we don't know that also it isn't happening is that, look, there, I think there's a lot of stuff, this is a thing that can be measured, that the year you graduate from college, has enormous impact on your life prospects. I, I graduated from college in 1982. And um, by and large, people who graduate from college in 1982 have done less well over their lives than people who graduated from college in 1996 because we graduated into a slack labor market. They graduated into a tight one. And, and the ben- and the consequences of that just reverberate for a long time. Mm. So it's, it's not surprising that if you're a new worker in 2022, um, you are enforcing more expectations on your employers than people who graduated in 2009 uh, i remember having um, young people who were part of the class of 2009 who worked for a website I then ran and yeah they there, there were no jobs and they were glad to take anything and they they went that extra mile um, and um, that but that reflected not that they were better people uh, but that they had less clout um, and people with more clout are going to behave differently but as I said, I think we need to, we may be into an era where, um, uh, because of the retirement of the baby boom, because we've maxed out the ability to bring wor- women into the workforce, and that was, that was a huge reservoir of underused labor mm-hmm. uh, through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s, um, that we are enter- entering a period of labor market constraint. Um, and if the possibilities of artificial intelligence and robotics are being over advertised, as it sure looks like they are, um, remember self-driving cars that were supposed to be here any day now? It doesn't look like they're going to be here any day now, and that, pe- that we're going to need truck drivers for a generation to come. Um, that we just have to, the thing we need to think about is um, uh, okay. We're in a period of supply constraint. Last thought on this: I don't want to like come up with too dramatic an historical analogy, but um, in the century after the Black Death hit medieval England, and England had the high, one of the highest death rates of probably overall about a third of the continent of Europe perished in that terrible plague, but in England it was probably more like closer to half the population. There was a tremendous reshift of power from people who worked to, uh, from owners of land to people who, who toiled on the land. Um, and one of the things the owners of the land did was to pass all kinds of laws telling uh, the people who worked on the land that, that you know, don't use your market power, it is forbidden, it is illegal to use your market power. And those laws, um, reflected, I mean, it's understandable that they would think that way, but they were impossible. I mean, you just have to, markets rule, and if we are in a period of labor scarcity, retiring baby boomers, uh, peak women, uh, that I- immigration is a very uh, imperfect way of meeting labor market constraints because they, uh, you get a less of a, it's much more random whether the, the people who come or the people who meet the jobs that most need to be done, and robotics and artificial intelligence are slow we may be in for a while where the, um, the shoe is on the other foot. And the people who have most access to the media to complain about the shoe being on the other foot are people with very big feet. Uh, but <laughs> um, just, uh, just as, uh, uh, you know, mar- markets are essentially, markets are not moral actors. They are simply ways of equilibrating um, human wants with human production. And uh, they sometimes favor some and sometimes favor the other.
1: Well, this has been a um, uh, kind of a, a pretty extraordinary conversation. We started with um, the sad news of the Queen's passing, um, and we've ended with um, a conversation about uh, the future of uh, the labor market in advanced economies like Canada, the United States. and, and you, deliver a, you deliver uh, an intellectual workout, Sean, always. I want to thank you for joining me, uh, David, and I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading online news source for politics and policy. We hope that this episode has expanded your horizons, maybe opened your mind to some new ideas and perspectives. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to share it with your friends and family, subscribe, and leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio editors are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.